Welcome to the Scene Gene Podcast. I'm Sally Howell, Director of the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. The Scene Gene Podcast highlights the voices of contemporary Arab American writers. It is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies and the Arab American National Museum. Joining us today is Mahjakaf, who was born in Damascus, Syria. Her family moved to the United States when she was four years old, and she grew up in Indiana and in New Jersey. She received a PhD in comparative literature from Rutgers University. She's the author of three collections of poetry, Emails from Scheherazade, which came out in 2003, Hajar Poems from 2016, and her recent book is called My Lover Feeds Me Grapefruit. It came out in 2020. She's also the author of the novel The Girl in the Tangerine Scarf, which came out in 2006. Koff co-wrote a column on sexuality for the website Muslim Wake Up, and her nonfiction work includes Western Representation of the Muslim Woman, From Termagant to Odalisk, which came out in 1999. Koff is a professor of English and comparative literature at the University of Arkansas. Her recent collection of poems, My Lover Feeds Me Grapefruit, won the 2020 Press 53 Award for Poetry. Thank you for joining us, Matcha. It is such a pleasure to be here with you, Sally. How are you doing? Good. Alhamdulillah. I'm really curious about the, the process of yeah. these two books that you produced sort of really close together in time. <laughs> they came out pretty quickly, one after the other. Uh, I noticed in particular in the Hagar poems, some of the poems you don't put a date on, and then other poems you're like really careful to put a date on. And then in the second book, I get the feeling that some of them maybe came out of the work you did on the, the website, Muslim Wake Up. You know, they might've come from that, or some of them might be older. So how do you produce a book? You know, what goes into producing a book? Well, so My Lover Feeds Me Grapefruit is mostly love and eros poems, but they didn't just come out of my work in, on the uh, Sex and the Ummah website. Rather, I have had a lifelong interest in sex and eros. <laughs> so both the column and, and, the, and the book came out of that. But So these two books, it's kind of curious because both of them, we're talking about Haja, right? The Haja mm-hmm. and My Lover Feeds Me Grapefruit. They both were books of poems that had been being written for a very long time. And so they like, they're these collections that collect up poems that some of them have been with me 15 or 20 years. Some of them were fresh and written the day before and just fit with the collection. So I included them. But, you know, so for example, the Hajar poems I had been writing since my first child, really, and especially started to flower during my second pregnancy. So that would be 94. And, and then the book comes out in 2016, you know, and part of it is I'm, I'm working and working. I have a body of poems that I call the Hajar poems since about 2000, and I'm working and working, working on them. When it comes out in 2016, and there's a poem I wrote when I'm, you know, 18 or 19 year old college student, I kind of, I just wanted to, to put that date there to say, this was a young poet, you know, young okay. woman. And it was um, the, the oldest one, I think, in there was, the Mary by the Glade poem. Yeah, where, where it was like this lonely teen angst, depression, serious. That really tells me a lot that, that this sort of body of work really began with pregnancy and then a first pregnancy and then a second pregnancy, because obviously there are the two pregnancies at the center of the story. Uh, so why don't you tell us about the structure of the book? 
So I realized then that I had poems also about other figures and other stories besides Tajar and Sarah. And so I made other sort of sections for the, the book to, to contain poems about Maryam, Fatima, etc. But the main body is about Hajar and Sarah, and they're written over many years, right? So I'm like picking up this story and examining it from many different angles. Sometimes readers, I think, want to fix what Sarah represents and pin down what Hajar represents. And it depends on the readership, but sometimes they will be like, Sarah is Israeli women and Hajar is Palestinian women and uh, Arab women with the Palestinian cause. And that's the dialogue that's going on there. And that may be true in some of the poems. And there, it's also not. And another one is because there's a whole long reading tradition of African-Americans reading Sarah as the slave owning mistress and Hajar as the African-American woman because of her experience with enslavement. Right. That may be the meaning shaded into some of the poems, but in other senses, you know, they've both had similar experiences of imprisonment and exile because Sarah in Egypt and there's there's sort of both brown women. I mean, Hajar is only Ethiopian, uh, you know, in some readings, Egyptian and other readings. We don't really know. So she herself is a, as a figure shifts depending on the telling, depending on the text. So these are women who are important to three different religious traditions, and they, they play a different role in each tradition. The Quranic representation of the, the birth of Isaac and the birth of Ishmael, it's a, it's a different telling of the story, right? In this story, she's not a slave. She's a wife of Abraham. She's, of course, sort of the mother of the, the, the nation, <laughs> the, the, yeah. the Arab nation um, or the, the Muslim nation. So, but, so what you do here is you read these women through these different lenses. You don't just have one point of view on any of them. As you think in some of the poems, there's a great deal of anger and resentment between the two women. And then in other poems, they're almost writing each other these like love letters of forgiveness yeah. and reconciliation. And they're one, at one point, Hodger's in therapy. And she's like telling Sarah, you really need therapy. <laughs> you know, if I needed it, man, I can't imagine how much you need it. There's an incredible yeah. amount of empathy that builds up between these two figures that I think is really remarkable. And I'm just fascinated at the idea that you were identifying with both of them and during your second pregnancy. When Sarah gets pregnant, she she should like reflects back on what it was like for her to experience Hajar's pregnancy. And when when Hajar hears that Sarah's pregnant, she identifies with her from this very maternal point of view. Right. I mean, I wanted for people to give me the space to let them have that process, you know, of being very angry and acknowledging the anger that is there. And um, I did a few readings at mosques and I do try to suit the reading to the, to the audience, but also to sort of push them a little bit. That was kind of the a challenging place is to let Hajar have those feelings of anger, you know, in that page crumpled page that she crumples. Okay. It's a letter, but she never sent it. You know, <laughs> I really appreciated the, the Miriam stories, because again, you give her narrative, like there's the poem, The Riverbank, where she has to sort of reconcile. I mean, I, it's almost like I want you to read it <laughs> because I think it's so interesting. It, it, you follow up this poem about her coming to terms with being pregnant and the supernatural nature of her pregnancy and the doubt that it created, you know, around her young life. And the poem ends between the riverbank of hatred and the riverbank of love, Miriam gives birth. Mm. She returns, she faces the townspeople, a sign, carrying a sign, speaking in signs, peace, bearing peace in her arms, proclaiming peace. 
And, and this is just such a beautiful message. It's such a wonderful representation. You know, the centrality of this narrative to Christianity, right? So it's like peace. This is peace. I mean, this is, this is the, the Christmas story here. But then you follow this up. The very next poem is a poem called The Food of Mary. Tell us about that poem. So that poem is a much more sort of mundane, profane reading. You know, it's just like identifying with Mary in. Yeah. Do you want me to read that poem? Sure. Sure. Read it. Read it. The food of Mary. Each time Zechariah entered her prayer chamber, he found her supplied with sustenance. He said, oh, Mary, whence cometh this? She said, from God. So that's the Quranic epigraph. After hours in my seventh floor municipal office, I am working on revisions to the drainage code, alone like Mary, high in her temple, staring at the blank blue screen that is my life. Mary tapping at the holy keyboard. God sent her fully microwavable meals with Alfredo sauce manifest. I bang on the candy machine down the hall. Nothing. It has eaten my paltry pieces of silver. Mary had a mentor in Zechariah who dropped in and taught her divine wisdom whenever he wasn't on a vow of silence, but only burned out Bill from computer services. Styrofoam cup loosely in hand with a little cold coffee left in it comes by my door to mutter about the weather. Mary got a visitation from Gabriel, which helped clarify things like her task in the world. I get the crosstown courier in bicycle shorts, panting, not so much to announce a virgin birth unto me as carrying a roll of blueprints under his arm, which I study religiously while eating not but stale chips and a linty lifesaver. The hour is late, my hunger groweth. Oh, Mary, Mary, whence cometh my divine crumb? Non-miraculous women can also seek divine crumb. This is a, a non-miraculous woman just trying to access some of Mary's divine crumbs. <laughs> exactly. And, and resenting Mary a little bit for all the special yeah. treatments she gets. <laughs> Who doesn't feel this way? You know, I want to encourage people to read this book. It really warrants just sitting down and reading it for, from beginning to end, because you tell stories in here. You retell these stories over and over again. You reflect on them and you, you make Hajar in particular so much about her narrative is just the struggle of an immigrant. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, she finds herself abandoned in this new place. You abandon her in many different generations and many different time periods, but she has to survive on her wits. And, um, and of course, with divine intervention. There is a way that sometimes some of the poems get um, read a little too hastily, I think, with good intention, the particularly one called All Good, where this one envisions the like a reconciliation scene. Right. And it's not without humor, but um, in this one, they gather, uh, they sit down for a meal under the naked stars. Sorrows furrow every face. This in the firelight, no one denies. No one tries to brush it all away or rushes into glib forgiveness. First, out of the woods, shadows emerge. The dead of Deryasin, killed by Zionist terror squads, the Kiryat Menachem bus riders killed by Palestinian suicide bomber. They face each other, tense up. Some of them still need gravestones. The ghosts of Mahmoud Darwish and Yehuda Amachai begin to teach them how to pronounce each other's names. 
in Hebrew and in Arabic. The poets will have a long night of it. Meanwhile, a Hamas sniper, a Mossad assassin fall to their knees, rocking. Each one cries, I was only defending my, my, into the arms of each Hajar and Sarah place a wailing orphaned infant. Slow moaning fills the air, a tone, a tone. The grieving goes on for ages. When the orange groves are given back to their rightful owners, the old family drama finally loses its power, withers, dies. A telling time for new stories begins. House keys digging bloody stigmata into the palms of Palestinians cast from their homes turn into hammers and nails for the rebuilding. Okay, so what happens here, I think, and it's partly my fault, I acknowledge, you know, maybe if I could revise this post-publication, I would make it even clearer. But I thought I was making it clear that the reconciliation can only happen after the orange groves are given back to their rightful owners. Then the old family drama can lose its power. Um, the key- I, I certainly got that. The key, you know, instead of turning swords into plowshares, you're turning keys into, you know, hammers. I mean, it's yeah. great. The keys become the right of return and their hammers for building new homes for Palestinians. And I was trying to envision that. But I think the parallelism of that first stanza maybe gives people the wrong idea. They're not parallel. There's not an equality of power. You know, um, how many homes has have Palestinians demolished by Israelis under law? You know, like legal, like zero. How many Palestinian prisons hold Israeli prisoners of war? Zero. It's not a symmetry of power there. And so there is some of that symmetry going on in the two sides, kneeling, atoning, learning each other's names. But I didn't want that to serve an agenda of equalizing. Yeah. And I can understand how it would be read that way. I didn't read it that way myself. I saw that you were trying to create, I don't think that we can, we can have peace until we have, till we learn to talk to each other and we, we learn to recognize each other's suffering. And again, not to equate them with one another, but just to acknowledge that there has been suffering on both sides, you know, again, not trying to say anything more than that. And, but then, I mean, very clearly, the future comes, the peace comes, the happiness comes, the ability to tell a new story doesn't come until, until, there's, until there's justice, really. Yeah. Um, Even that line during the middle of the symmetry, right, that they're, the, the, the dead on each side, there's a line that says some of them still do not have gravestones. You know, the Arab ones are the ones that don't have gra- gravestones. The Israeli ones have been recognized, but uh, not the dead of Der Yassin. Yeah. Well, and we see that, um, I mean, even today that some people are getting the vaccine and other people aren't getting the vaccine (laughs) and that's all being controlled by the government. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, yeah, I understand that. So, um, so you also do something, I mean, I feel like I'm sort of glossing over the book because it's so rich. There's so much in it, but the last section of the book, it's something that I think, again, I think a lot of people can relate to this section of the book. In the Muslim community, there's quite a bit of talk about the unmosked, or mm-hmm. there's quite a bit of self-criticism about the way in which mosques are very frequently structured. Very often, space is allocated differently to men and to women, 
and some congregations are, you know, more welcoming than others to outsiders. This is true of, you know, many religious traditions, and people are very critical of the churches they grew up in as well. So, uh, but I just find that it's so, it, it's filled with anger, and it's filled with humor, and it's filled with genuine love. It's just the most remarkable poem. I kind of want to I want to take it and I want to like put it in every mosque I go to just sort of leave Xerox copies of it in the, especially in the women's side of the mosque, you know, where, wherever there is a women's side set aside, I want to put it there. I, I wish more people knew about this poem. There's an organization in Detroit called ISPU, the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, which has done all this reporting on gender issues in mosques and, uh, and just how to make, they have a whole report on how to make mosques more welcoming. They could use your poem as their opening section, you know, Okay. Tell, tell me about this. Tell me about this poem. What? 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 It, I mean, I, I, it's obvious what inspired it, but maybe just tell tell our listeners a little bit about the poem. It was published online in the mid two thousands in that first decade, and so kind of had his, its fifteen minutes of going around. But this is again one of those kind of long, long lived you know collection of observations that that finally make it into this one poem. At first, it, kind of a series of different small poems that are then are then collected under this umbrella called Little Mosque Poems, coming from that the experience of, of inequality in, in the mosque. And I want to sit, frame this for my home audience. I don't need to frame this for the folks in Dearborn. And for the larger audience, I want to frame it with my larger analysis, which is that Islam gets singled out for a special scrutiny around gender. And there is absolutely no need for that to happen because Islam is not more inherently more patriarchal than Judaism or Christianity. And in fact, this is a narrative that in my scholarly academic work, that that was the, my research, it was my dissertation research and my first book, is that this narrative only comes about in the 1700s is when it begins to build. This narrative that Islam is somehow inherently worse for women is a Euro-colonialist ideology. It's part of that Euro-colonialist narrative, master narrative that comes out that we need to civilize the world. And the ironic thing is that it comes out when European women have no rights, you know, and when they're wearing these corsets and these ridiculous immobile garments of attire that render them far less mobile than the Muslim women of the Ottoman Empire, for example, who can ride horses because they wear pantaloons, which are the basis of the bloomers that the feminists, you know, now want to wear and invent at the end of the 19th century. So and at a time when Muslim women have, you know, for example, in the Ottoman Empire, have far more property rights than Christian women, far more divorce rights than Orthodox Jewish women, remarriage and, and so on. There are very real ways in which um, this narrative is bogus. And the other half of that, when I always you know, give that analysis, the other half of that is it's also no less patriarchal. So it's still patriarchal. And we get to analyze the ways in which it's patriarchal without having that snatched up into that larger master narrative of Eurocolonialism, which is still ongoing. Yeah, well, so you also have in the poem a critique of sort of the racial dynamics of the Muslim community. I'm a historian, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> I write about the early Muslim community in Michigan. One of the things that observers of the Muslim community said about the Muslims and that many of the Muslim leaders claimed for themselves was that Islam was a colorblind religion. And that, um, and I, I know in one of the first services that was held in the city of Detroit itself in 1923, there was a, a young man from India who was observing the prayer. And he said that never in his life had he seen the, the ideal of racial harmony manifest in the 
way he did and the people who were praying in, in front of him who were from Africa and from the Middle East and from you know Eastern Europe. And he, he thought that they were really living up to their ideals in a way he'd never seen before. And I know I, I really like going to mosques in particular in university towns because in university towns, you get people from all over the world and you really see this ummah you know, it sort of materializes in front of your eyes. And to be in the women's section of a mosque, women tend to wear long flowing garments when they're in the mosque and their scarves. And so the, the women's side of the mosque is really colorful and dynamic. And there's just so much diversity and um, also very loving and nurturing because there are always children there. And the children are sort of tugging at their mother's clothing and, uh, you know, all this stuff is going on during the prayer. So it's really a beautiful thing. And you capture that feeling so well in the poem, but then you also capture the reverse of it. And this was happening at the time of the Bosnian and the breakup of former Yugoslavia and the Serbian genocide against um, both Albanians and Bosnians and, and Croats. I heard this from a comment from my friend's mother, actually, I should credit, you know, may she rest in peace that she mentioned this. She's like, oh, but they're not that concerned about black women suffering, but Bosnian women seem to like become this, not to diss Bosnian women's suffering either, of course. But that's where that stanza in there comes from about my little mosque faints at the sight of pale Bosnian women suffering across the sea. Black women suffering across the street do not move my little mosque much. The other stanza about sort of race dynamics within the American Muslim community. My little mosque loves converts, especially white men and women who give why I embraced Islam lectures trotted out as trophies by the Muslim pom-pom squad of religious one-upmanship. And then, of course, some of the Arab centricism. I do it for communities that are not my own because they're also my own, I felt like, because I also grew up with South Asian communities. I grew up in Indiana in a very multi-ethnic Muslim community that um, really did. And, and I realized after that, after a while, that that was kind of rare, actually, for a lot of people, that they typically grow up in a more mono-ethnic mosque community. But, you know, my first mosque school was at Al-Fajr Mosque in Indianapolis, which is an African-American mosque. And that was our Sunday school. And also the, uh, you know, it was pretty equally Arab and South Asian. Anyway, so another stanza here. I love my dysfunctional little mosque, even though I can't stand it. My little mosque loves Arab men with pure accents and beards. Everyone else is welcome, as long as they understand that real Islam has to come from an Arab man. My little mosque loves Indian and Pakistani men with Maududi in their pockets. Everyone else is welcome because, as we all know, there's no discrimination in Islam. So this kind of slides into the code switches or whatever, into the, the language you're supposed to have and the way that it's denied and sugar-coated and the underlying things that are never really said, like the real Islam comes from Arab men, kind of not dated. Everybody would say, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't, buy, we don't believe that if you actually said it, but they're operating on that principle. So why can't we just say that they're operating on that principle? And that's the thing about the poem. It's like every single line in it, every one of these little mini poems within the poem is making some argument like that. With a lot of humor, you can see that she's, you know, you've got a lot of sarcasm, and <laughs> uh, but also a lot of love. Like you want to just read the last, I, I don't have it open in front of me, but like the last section where you. Yeah, sure. The, like the last stanza. Yes. I went to the mosque when no one was there. No one was sweeping up. She said, this place is just a place. 
Light is everywhere. Go, live in it. The mosque is under your feet wherever you walk each day. So, it, I mean, obviously, all of this criticism is, is delivered from a position of love. Recognizing <laughs> that, yes. And may I also credit that those last lines came directly out of a conversation with my mentor and someone that I really gained a lot from um, conversing with when I was for starting from when I was a grad student, Dr. Amina Wadud. Ah, okay, yeah. And she writes an introduction to the collection too, which is really, yeah. really wonderful. This this next book follows up on them. I mean, this book has so much, I mean, it's focused on, you know, Quranic figures and figures from the Hadith and Old Testament figures and really focuses on religion. And then the, the book that follows up is, you know, this book about eroticism and sexuality and love and longing and passion. I mean, it must have been a real release <laughs> to, to change subjects in this way. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, and these sort of crazy love poems had started to be written in 98, really out of this encounter with a different kind of approach to spirituality and kind of a, a, an introduction to Sufism that was experiential and friendship based as well as, you know, um, wasn't really based on like entering a tariqa or anything like that. And also I was reading a lot of Nizar Abani. I kind of wanted to be like the tit for tat, like to Nizar Abani, you know, so, so sometimes there was, there was almost that conversation going on. I was really actually happy when a, a, a friend of mine who uh, was one of the first to read the book after it came out, read it. Their comment was, oh, you are the female Nizaka Ben. <laughs> Success. <laughs> Success. <laughs> well, so what is the reaction to this book, Ben? I know it just came out, but I it mean, came out during COVID. I mean, it came out in February 2020. So I don't know. <laughs> So you're not, yeah, you're not hearing any feedback. It's just the, I mean, the thing, the thing is, is uh, you write about so many different kinds of lovers. One of my favorites, I like the guy who's sitting in front of you at the conference. And then the, and so again, like the earlier book, it, it rewards you if you read it from start to finish. So there's one poem about the Celtic God at the Waterfront Festival. And then like, you know, 20 pages later, she's got another one more about <laughs> the Celtic God at the Waterfront Festival. It's like she sees this guy working the stage or whatever he's doing. And she's, she, you know, she has this erotic fantasy about him basically. And then later on, she remembers another detail that she forgot to put in the first poem and it gets up, it gets a whole poem. It's just so so much fun. And I mean, it's not just a poem about profane things. It's about the ways in which you mix your faith with the profane side of your life. You know, you, you mix the sacred and the profane together. In the poem that you read for us, Wet Chastity, I mean, it, I mean it's clear that the, this is a kind of desire that you feel like is promoted by monogamy, you know, which is, which is a requirement for women in, in Islam. So just tell me about how you work your, you know, Islam is always here. Well, yeah, some of it is in places like that where you have a very sort of, you know, um, living flesh and blood in this world, you know, kind of experience and you're, um, you're shaped by, by the Islam and your background and you're finding your niches and stuff in its given structures. But there's another way in which the sacred and the profane really aren't even acknowledged as two separate places anyway. And that comes out of the Sufi tradition in Islam, which I don't claim to be 
you know, an, an adept at or someone who's at all advanced in or anything, neither intellectually nor experientially, spiritually or anything. Omid Safi reiterates this in his wonderful book, Radical Love, where he says that Ahmed al-Ghazali said that don't try to separate divine love from human love. Don't. Like, don't even go that route. It's all wrapped up in one thing. And I was, I was really happy that Rahat Kurd, who wrote the, the introduction uh, to it, the little preface there, immediately picked up on that. It's like a celebration and a freedom by, by combining those things, by, by refusing to bifurcate yourself. You really, really enjoy the pleasure of the body, the pleasure of another person, the pleasure of even desire that's not satisfied. <laughs> it has its own <laughs> pleasure, you know? I mean, it's just such a welcoming book. The poem that you open the book with is really just amazing. Can I get you to read it when I come sure. to you? Sure. When I come to you running, come to me sprinting. When I come to you smiling, come to me laughing. When I come to you dancing, come to me clapping and stamping. When I come to you clowning, cartwheel across the boardwalk to me. Do you know how long it's taking to learn this beautiful clumsiness? When I come to you, rush to me, fly. And I mean, obviously this is a, a, a lover talking to another lover, but I also feel that as a reader of the book, <laughs> you know, it's a great way to open a collection of poems. I mean, it makes me want to fly. It makes me want to rush right to you, to turn the page, to do cartwheels while I'm reading. I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's such an evocative poem. And there is some hadith that this is a reference to, right? Right. It's a hadith Qudsi. Rahat cites it. I don't have the text of the Hadith Qudsi pulled up right now, so I can't quote it by heart or anything, but Rahat cites it in the preface and echoes a Hadith Qudsi, she writes, in which God says, when my worshiper comes to me walking, I go to her running. That reciprocity, there's a give and take, I feel like, in this book. There's a you and an I, you, I and thou. And, um, and there, there is another poem, Kiss Me, You Fool, which is a much more erotic interpretation of that. It's the poem saying this sort of come hither poem to the, to the reader. And you, you've also got one called Worship, Abada, which is like, it's, it's uh-huh. like the sex yeah. act itself is worship. You know, you, you, you right. do a parallelism between, between Muslim prayer and sex. And it's just, it's really a powerful poem. And that, that one was one of the not late 90s ones. Yeah, that was a, an early poem. In this it was book. a younger you poem. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I, I was intrigued when I got to the end of the book. I was intrigued to see the author's note at the end. And I think it was because maybe I feel immersed enough in the Arab American, you know, literary scene or everyday life or Muslim American life. I feel immersed in these things, even though I'm, I'm an outsider to them. There, there's so many references here for insiders, and there are also references for outsiders, right? There's plenty of meat for both audiences. But I think when I got to the end, it, it, it sort of jarred me to read that because I think you're imagining an audience that isn't people like me, right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, your afterward or you're, your author's note. You're like an honorary Amto in the Arab American community. You're like Amto Sally, you know? But I started to realize for, for rel- very real reasons, I don't, I don't want to like name names or anything like that, but I mean, I started to suddenly realize that it was going to be read by people very much outside and very much unversed and very 
Oh, and I was just like, oh boy. Okay. Okay. So I, I don't want this to turn into one of these Arab woman rebels and writes about sexuality, you know, like, please do not know the tradition, you know? So, you know, people who were finding it so, you know, shocking and like, uh, like there was this woman in rebellion against her culture. And I just wanted to, to put a stop to that. I wanted to make sure, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of controlling of me, I guess. It's me being a control freak, uh, maybe. Or it's, it's me trying to put in, put, you know, decolonizing booby traps to not let it be read in a colonizing way and sort of a post-colonial feminist booby trap in it. And so to resist, to push against that reading, because I could, I could just almost, there was a moment during the process where I could just see it being crafted into one of these narratives that then you make us, you know, you, you make it almost a marketing niche, right. For the, the, the Arab woman who is rebelling and, Oh, look, she's, and then you sort of, you know, somebody wants to censor her. So you make that into a big deal. And, and then she ends up getting death threats or whatever. I mean, like I've been down that route. Like I'm not, I'm fully prepared to get death threats for when I want to, to do something that is really important. Right. Um, I mean, I could talk about anyway, but you don't want to get death threats for love poems, but but yeah, (laughs) wait a minute. I teach Arab women's writing and I teach this literature and this comes, you know, very much out of that tradition and not against it and not exceptional. I don't want to be exceptionalized. I don't want to be made into like Oh, the exceptional. And I realize when you say Arab, I mean, there's a vast array. There's a variety within the culture. Um, there are different pockets of culture. And so, you know, one place, not only do I, I, I want to cite these specifically Arab women writers, the three that I cite who, who wrote love poems and erotic poems, um, but also in pop culture, you know, in just folk culture. There's also these spaces, um, which I very much feel connected to. There's OK. So there's. Um, there's a Damascene and it's also exists in Nablus and sort of other um, the urban areas in the Mashriq, but not the country areas in the Mashriq because I'm familiar with country in my family also, you know, ha- have um, branches and intermarriage and, and so on or, or marriages uh, with, you know, people who are from the smaller towns in the countryside. And there is a different culture. So there is this Damascene middle class and maybe it's a very specific niche. Maybe it's like middle-class Sunni merchants kind of thing where there's this women and women, women. I mean, you could grow up as a young man in that culture, completely grow up in that culture and maybe not even know that this subculture exists, but it's the women's kitchen table sex talk. And my amme had it and her, you know, daughters. And so at their kitchen table, I heard it and it's like, and, and it can be framed. Maybe the men who are aware of it frame it as women, very savvy about sex so they can be pleasing wives or framing it in some patriarchal way. Do you know what I mean? But that's not necessarily how they experience it. And their sex advice and talk and jokes with each other are very much framed around equally around women's pleasure, centrally around women's pleasure too. And so that, and then knowing the the history that I teach these, these very erotic, you know, Arab women's poetry from, from, uh, pre-modern eras. And there's this thing that happens with Arab women's writing is that it gets approached through this uh, framing of dearth, of scarcity. And I'm a comparative literature person. I mean, 
So like in your intro, you said teaches English and I do, I'm in the English department, but my field that my degree is in comparative literature and I don't claim to be an expert in, you know, hugely multiple fields, but, but, you know, I did, I did my uh, training, my graduate training in, in European literature, medieval European literature. Um, and so I am aware of the women's tradition of writing in a number of European languages. And I'm sorry, but they're just not nearly the, the abundance of women poets that you find in the Arab tradition. You know, you look for, for example, in, um, in, in Old English, which is contemporary with like uh, 8th century um, Arab women's production or 9th century, or you look to Middle English, you look to, uh, at French women, there's, there's Marie de France, you know, there's some very early, but you just don't have the number that, that we have and the abundance. And so why is it always framed with scarcity? You know, like even Salma Khadr Jayusi in um, one of her intros somewhere, you know, talks about how Arab women since Walada, uh, free Arab women have not had the opportunity to speak about love. And I just feel like, why do we keep repeating this? <laughs> I, I, I lived in Jordan with the Bedouin and a couple of different communities. And I regret that my Arabic was not up to the task of capturing the erotic poetry that I heard or just the stories. And I, I think people, they saw me as a, at the time I was a young woman, uh, newly married, although everyone doubted the fact that we were actually married because we didn't have children yet. <laughs> so it was like all those Americans, they don't really get married. Uh, but people had, um, you know, so much curiosity about, about how sex works in, in here in the U S and, um, and uh, yeah, uh, people were not uptight, you know, that, that just was not a part of the community that I lived in or the experience that I had of living in the Middle East. Um, but my uh, Arabic, alas, was not good enough for me to really capture all the nuance. I mean, I would know that jokes were being made all around me because people would be saying one thing to me and I would understand it in a certain way, but everybody would be dying laughing, you know? So <laughs> anyway, I totally uh, just want to reassert from the contemporary ethnography point of view right. that what she's saying is, is with your erudition is actually, you know, has been very um, much reflected in my experience of the region as well. I want to thank you um, for talking to me. I could talk to you all day about these poems. I have a list of like 20 here that I have questions about. Um, they're just wonderful. And all of your experience as a Muslim, your practice of your faith, the way you think about your faith, the history of your, your literary studies, it just shines through on every page with your awesome sense of humor. I mean, it's just amazing. And so I want to encourage people to, to, to read both of these books. And if you have the chance when the COVID imprisonment is, is lifted from us, I want to encourage you to actually um, attend a reading by Mahja because she reads, you know, her reading here today on camera was one thing. It was, it was performative, but her actual readings before a live audience, she just, she reads with abandon and she insists again that her audience come flying and running into her arms. It's just, it's just the most fascinating thing to hear her read. So enjoyable. Thank you. Tislami. Tislam kalamik. Shukran. Bishikrek. Today's episode of the Seen Gene podcast was hosted by Sally Howell. It was produced by Asma Baban, Muhammad Jafar, and Maryam Razet. It was edited by Muhammad Jafar with support from Eric Kiskop. Our theme song was composed by Isra Darwish, and our logo was created by Maisara Abdelhaq. 
Seeing Gym is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan Dearborn and the Arab American National Museum. Seeing Gym is funded by the University of Michigan Arts Initiative and the Ford Community Development Fund. Thank you for listening.